Now, would you turn to John chapter 17? John 17 and verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, this morning I want to begin a series of studies on the Lord's Prayer. Not our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, uh, which is not really the Lord's Prayer, but the disciples' prayer. It was a prayer given by Jesus to teach his disciples how to pray, but rather, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones called this the holy of holies of scriptural revelation. And John Brown, the 18th century commentator, says the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John is without doubt the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in all the world. You see, in this prayer, we're taken into the very uh, heart of the Godhead, and we are allowed, as it were, to listen to a conversation between the first and second persons of the Trinity. It is indeed holy ground that must be approached with awe and with reverence. And one can understand the feelings of the 17th century German Moravian preacher, Stein, who said that I would not dare to preach on John 17. However, if you go down to verse 13, we see that the reason Jesus prayed these words audibly was for the benefit of the disciples. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. The full measure of joy within them, says the NIV. And although we may hesitate to preach such a sacred portion of Revelation, uh, preach it we must because it is intended that we might know the full measure of joy within us. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, gave instructions to his wife and his secretary that they read to him from John 17 every day on his deathbed. The prayer can be divided into three. In verses 1 to 5, he, pray, he prays for himself. In verses 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples. And in verse 20 to the end of the chapter, he prays for all who will believe in him. So in a very real sense, you and I are the objects of this prayer. We are included. It was Cyril of Alexander in the 5th century who first called it the high priestly prayer because the Lord is interceding, doing the work of a high priest on behalf of his people. Now notice verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these things, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. We usually, as a mark of reverence, 
close our eyes and bow our heads. He opened his eyes and lifted his head. And although no posture for prayer is specified in Scripture, it's surely appropriate that as sinners we bow our heads and close our eyes, but as the sinless Son of God, Jesus opened his eyes and lifted his head. Now this morning we want to look at the first five verses, the portion that we read together, where Jesus prays for himself. And I want you to notice uh, three things, the desire in the prayer expressed, the motivation of the prayer examined, and the answer to the prayer expected. So first of all, the desire uh, in the prayer expressed. Notice the opening line of the prayer, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. Now, this is profound and mysterious. This is a sledgehammer that smashes with one blow the heresies of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Here, Jesus prays to God the Father that God the Father might glorify God the Son. Now, for anyone else to pray such a prayer would be blasphemy. It's man's and chief end, as the Shorter Catechism says, to glorify God. But here Jesus is praying that God would glorify him because Jesus was no ordinary man. He was the God-man. He was the second person of the Trinity. He was the one who enfleshed himself and came to live among us, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, heal the incarnate deity. So he and he only could possibly and would pray such a prayer. Glorify your son. Jesus was uniquely and supremely the son of God. Our Lord taught us in the disciples' prayer to pray our Father who is in heaven. But we are his children by adoption, by grace, by mercy. Jesus is uniquely and supremely the Son of God. You know that phrase in the only, uh, in the authorized version, the only begotten is translated in the uh, NIV as one and only for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And actually the one and only is, is a, a, a good translation because the emphasis there is on the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of the Son. I think it's a pity that the ESV only translates it as uh, only. He gave his only Son. He is supremely the Son of God. That voice from heaven at his baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And as the eternal Son of God, he took the nature of man. One of the unique features of this prayer is the absence of a confession of sin. There's no line within it, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them who trespass against us. Because our Lord had no sin to confess. He was spotless and peerless. He was sinless. He was God. And so as God, he could legitimately and justly pray, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son. No other person could or should Pray such a prayer. Now, what did he mean when he prayed, glorify your son? 
The dictionary defines glorify in uh, four ways. To make glorious, to make more glorious, to worship, or to exalt. And it is in this last sense that Jesus uses the word to exalt, to lift up, to glorify. Uh, we know that, uh, that, that our, our Lord Jesus, in coming into the world, veiled his glory. Look at uh, verse uh, 4, verse 5. Um, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That he was exalted and lifted high and glorified before the incarnation as the eternal Son of God. And that glory was veiled then when he came into the world. He looked like an ordinary man. There was nothing uh, particularly attractive uh, in the appearance of the Lord Jesus. Isaiah says he had no beauty that we should desire him. He looked like an ordinary man. There were times when his divinity uh, burst through his humanity and he radiated glory at the transfiguration. But for the most part, he was to all who knew him, to all who saw him, just a, an ordinary man. And now he prays that the Father would glorify him, that his true identity would be revealed and he would be exalted. Now, I want you just to notice the, un, the utter unselfishness uh, of this, this uh, prayer. So we have the, the desire uh, in the prayer expressed, then the, the nature of the prayer examined. It's, it's a totally unselfish request of the Lord Jesus, glorify your Son. Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come, Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Jesus, as God, has the right to receive glory, but that's not his motivation in praying that he might be glorified. He prays that he might be glorified, that in turn he would glorify the Father, that in his glory... The Father would be glorified too, that the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son are mutually dependent upon each other. And that was the motivation of Christ in making this request that the Father would be glorified as he had been in his life. It was a constant goal of the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry to glorify the Father. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? A concept that runs contrary to much current evangelical thought. That you glorify God not simply through expressions of worship, but by obedience to his word. That, that you live your life in worship. During his life, Jesus executed all the Father's will. And in that obedience, he glorified the Father. A woman's work is never done, we're told. 
And I can identify with that because a pastor's work is never done. There's always something else to do. There's someone to visit, somebody to speak to, another sermon to write. But Jesus could look at his life and he could say, I've done it all. I've accomplished everything. It was a job well done. And the work that he was given by the Father was completed. And what motivated him in that arduous fulfillment of the will of God is the glory of God, the exaltation of God. He glorified uh, God by his life in completing the work that the Father had given him to do. But now he is praying that, that he might glorify God, not simply in his life, but in his death. Notice that little phrase there in verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now that phrase, the hour, or the time as it is in the NIV, is a very important phrase in John's Gospel. Do you remember at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee when Mary was putting her son under pressure to uh, solve the problem of the run-out wine? And our Lord responds and says, My hour has not yet come. In John 7 and verse 30, the Jews tried to seize Jesus, but they couldn't lay hold of him because we're told his hour had not yet come. This section of John's Gospel, the Upper Room Discourse, begins back in John 13 and verse 1, and we're told Jesus knew that his hour had come. Or just look up to the end of chapter 16 and verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. And the phrase, that phrase, the hour, refers to his death. And now Jesus prays that God would be glorified in his death just as he was by his life. Glorify me. Accept my work. Raise me from the dead. Take me back into heaven that by my death great glory will be brought to your name. If you turn back uh, just to John chapter 12, and it would be helpful just if you turn there, John chapter 12 and verse 27. John chapter 12 and verse 27. We read these words, John 12, 27. John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What is that phrase, this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So Jesus is praying that by his death, the Father would be glorified. And, and the Father in, in uh, this previous reference in John chapter 12 says, Look, I, I have glorified uh, my name through your life, and now I will glorify it through your death. This was the great motivation in the life of the Lord Jesus, that the Father might be glorified by his obedience in his life 
and by the sacrifice of his death. What utter selflessness in the heart of the Lord Jesus. The reason that he prays that he might be glorified, that he might be vindicated, is that the Father himself would be exalted and glorified. And sometimes that's an emphasis that is greatly missing in our thinking and our theology. We think that his only motive in going to the cross was his love for us. And to be sure, that was a, a, a great motive. But how egocentric we are. He went to the cross not just because of his love for us, but because of his love for his Father, and that by his death, by that hour, the Father would be glorified. And what a great example that is then to us to live our lives and to die our deaths for the glory of God. Whatever we do, whatever work we are allotted and assigned, the great constraining motive behind Everything must be the glory of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Is that your goal? Is that your ambition? That God's name will be glorified? So you don't ask what's best for you, what satisfies you, what, what, what's uh, good for you, but what glorifies God. This is man's chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The motivation explained that he's praying that the Father would glorify him by his death, that glory in turn would be brought to the Father. The desire in the prayer expressed, the motivation of the prayer examined. The third thing I want you to notice is the answer uh, to the prayer uh, uh, expected. If Jesus is praying that both he and the Father might be glorified by his death, we've got to ask, how is the Father and how is Jesus glorified by the death of Jesus? Because death is a horrible thing. And Jesus died a horrible death. He was beaten, stripped, mocked, spat upon, nailed to the cross, all hell was led on him, and from the depths of his sorrow he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How uh, was this prayer answered? How could the death of Jesus bring glory to Jesus and glory to the Father? Well, the answer is there in verse 2 and 3. Since now, uh, the NIV says for, I think that's probably the best translation. The authorized version, uh, uh, translation, ah, this is just not adequate. It's just not good enough because there is a connection here. Jesus is, is, is praying that, that, that the name of the Father would be glorified. Well, how he's going to be glorified in the death of Jesus since, here's the reason, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life that they know the one, uh, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. 
You see then how the Father was to be glorified, how this prayer was to be answered by the granting of the gift of eternal life. In other words, our Lord's prayer and this petition is answered by the salvation of men and women. This is how the Son will be glorified and this is how the death uh, of Jesus will be effective that will ultimately bring glory to the Father by the giving, by the granting of eternal life. That nothing glorifies God more than the salvation of precious souls. Now let's look at this salvation for a moment. This is truly remarkable. Look at, look at verse 2, the source of eternal life. Look at Let's read it carefully. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Let me repeat that. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It's a wonderful verse. But it's not a widely accepted verse. Look at what he says. The Father has given to Jesus authority over all flesh. The NIV says over all people. He has given him authority over all of his creation that he might grant eternal life. So the granting of eternal life is a prerogative that the Father has given to the Son. Eternal life is a gift that the Son bestows. It's a divine initiative as well as a divine prerogative. But Jesus goes further and he identifies the people to whom this eternal life will be granted. Verse 2, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you have given him. I please remember, these are the words of Jesus. They're not the words of Stephen Curry. That he has authority to grant eternal life to all those that the Father has given him. This refers to what theologians call the eternal covenant of redemption. That in eternity past, God the Father gave to the Son a great multitude that no man can number, and the Son agreed to come into the world to save those people from their sin. You shall give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And that's something that's repeatedly taught in Scripture. John six thirty-seven: All that the Father has given me will come to me, and he who comes to me I will never drive away. That the Father in eternity past has given to God the Son a great multitude, and all of that multitude will come. You see, in this high priestly prayer, Jesus takes us into the very inner counsels of the Godhead and tells us that Christians were actually marked out and chosen for salvation. I remember these are the words of Jesus. What do you want me to do with them? 
Do you want me to ignore them? Do you want me to explain them away? Do you want me to give some weird and wonderful interpretation of them that will water them down? I think rather our response ought to be in humility with the hymn writer, say, why, O Lord, such love to me? O such love my soul still ponder, love so great, so rich and free. Say, why lost in holy wonder, why, O Lord, such love to me? Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Grace shall reign eternally. And this follows, doesn't it? If, if God is glorified in salvation and Jesus is praying that the Father will be glorified through the salvation of his people, that then salvation must be a work of his. He'll not share his glory with anyone else. No one's going to stand on the, on the, on the last day and the great day and says, well, I, I know you did it, God, but I did it too. I had my contribution to make. No. He alone is the source of all salvation. And because of that, He alone is glorified by it. The source of eternal life. Look at the nature of eternal life. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you uh, um, sent. When we think of eternal life, we think of endless life. We think of an extended life. But that's quite wrong. Because eternal life has more to do with the quality of life than the quantity of life. The unbeliever lives an endless life. You're going to live forever. Fame. You're going to live forever. Uh, a canary lives 15 years, a pigeon 20 years, a lion 35 years, a bear 50 years, a parrot 100 years, and an elephant 200 years. But you're going to live forever because God has entrusted you with a never-dying soul. And so Jesus is telling us that eternal life, as D.A. Carson says, is not so much everlasting life, but a knowledge of the everlasting one. He says in verse 3 that eternal life is that we might know him, the true God, and Jesus Christ whom he sent. To know in Hebrew was much more than intellectual apprehension. It was, it was a relationship. It was uh, intimate. Adam knew his wife Eve, the Old Testament tells us. And so the, the goal of our salvation is that we might be brought to know God and that we might be brought to know Jesus Christ, that we might be brought into an intimate relationship with the Father and the Son. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you experienced a fellowship and communion with him? Do you know what it is to have your heart enraptured by the glory and the holiness of God, to be overwhelmed by his love, to have his love shed abroad in your heart? That's the nature of eternal life. It's not sterile, dead, going through the motions uh, of, of, of external worship. It's having a living, vibrant relationship with the living God. That they may know the only true God and Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? The nature of eternal life, the source, the nature, 
and the basis. Now we must ask ourselves, on what basis is this eternal life granted? Well, we've already hinted in that. That little word since at the beginning of verse 2. The hour has come. The hour of my death has come. Glorify your Son that the Son might glorify you. Since, through my death, through this hour, through the work that I will do and I will accomplish, that salvation will be secured and salvation can be granted. What is said in verses 2 and 3 is dependent upon what is said in verse 1. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour was the time of His death. And the basis of this salvation is rooted in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ that eternal life is granted. Eternal life is a consequence of his death. Because there on the cross, Jesus swallowed up the wrath of God for the sin of all who would believe in him. And that's how Christ would be glorified. He prays, glorify me. Uh, The hour has come. Glorify me that I might glorify you. Well, how is that going to happen? Because through the death of Christ... This great multitude from every tribe and kindred and nation and language would savingly be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. Their sin would be paid for and their sin would be covered. His sin was a shameful and painful thing. There was nothing glorious about that hour. It was hideous. It was horrible. It was horrendous. But through his stripes and through his wounds, we are healed. He is our substitute, swallowed up the wrath of God so that he could uh, justly, justly grant eternal life to those who believe. His justice and his righteousness demanded that sin be paid for And if any of us were ever to experience this eternal life, to come to know the true and living God and His Son, Jesus Christ, then uh, pardon had to be secured in one hand and the wrath of God, the justice of God, had to be placated on the other. And so Christ came into the world with our names and identities uh, in His mind and on His heart, and He went to the cross to bear their sin that he might have the authority to grant them eternal life. If we are to enjoy eternal life, the sin must be paid for. There's an ancient king who passed a law against a certain crime that anyone who committed in a crime in the kingdom would have both his eyes extracted, both his eyes put out. And his own son then committed that crime. And uh, the legal system was such that justice had to be administered. The crime had to be paid for. And so the king stepped forward and he put out the eye of his son. And he also put out his own eye so that the full demands of the law were met. But in that, his son still experienced mercy. But Christ didn't do that. He didn't exact half the penalty from me, um, from him, and then half from the sinner. 
He said, put out both my eyes. He paid the price in full, swallowing up the wrath of God. And at the end of the accomplishment of that great work, he said, Telepestai, it is finished. It's paid for, paid in full. And that's how the prayer of Jesus was answered. Glorify me that I might glorify you. How are Jesus and the Father glorified in salvation, in this granting of eternal life? So here's this wonderful summary of salvation, the, the source of eternal life. It's from Christ. He has the authority to grant eternal life. What's the nature of salvation? It's, it's knowing God. It's having this relationship with God and having this relationship with Jesus Christ. And the basis of eternal life is His death, the R, which would bring glory to His name. I have to ask you then in closing, have you eternal life? Do you know Him? I mean, I mean really know Him. Is it just outward, as Paul says, do you, do you have this form of godliness, but you deny the power thereof? Do you, do you know Him? Do you have this ongoing relationship with Him? Do you know God the Father? Do you know God the Son? Do you know God the Father as your ruler and protector, and God the Son as, as your, your Savior and your substitute? Has He granted you eternal life? Do you know God, and do you know Jesus Christ? Now, you might say to me, well, how do I know then? If I'm one of those people who has been given in eternity by the Father to the Son, how do I know that? Well, you mustn't ask that question. That's like saying the Bible teaches it's appointed unto man once to die, and so that death is a divine appointment that is fixed by him. And then you go out and stand in the middle of the road in the bypass waiting for a car to knock you down. Sovereignty and responsibility are a, a, a great mystery. Spurgeon was once asked, how do you reconcile the doctrine of divine sovereignty with human responsibility in the Bible? And he says, oh, they don't need reconciled. You don't need to reconcile friends. There's a, there's a, there is a mystery here. And the, the, the mystery in terms of human responsibility is that he invites you to come. That, that great verse in John 6, 37 that I mentioned earlier, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and he who comes to me I will never drive away. You must hearken to his invitation. You must respond to his call. He says to you, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you feel your sin? Do you feel wed down by you, your sin? Are you you lacking that, that peace and contentment that uh, only knowing God and knowing Christ can bring? Well, come to him. Believe in him. Cast yourself upon him, and you will then find that you are one of the ones that has been given to him from all eternity. Will you not come? Will Christ not be glorified today by your salvation? Will this prayer of Jesus not be answered in this congregation today that, that Christ would be glorified 
And the Father would be glorified in that someone comes to know God and to know Christ. The answer expected to the prayer. Amen.